Take out your Bible this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, and as you're turning there, I'd like for you to find chapter 3. Chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing in our series, The Story of Salvation. And as we begin this morning, I want to begin by asking you a question. I want, you to, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about if, if you've ever, ever experienced something like this. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, well, I've got some good news and some bad news? How many of you ever had someone say that to you? I got some good news. I got some bad news. How many of you are like me? You're like, just get to the bad news, please. Yeah? Yeah? How many of you, I'd rather hear the good news, right? And uh, yeah, there's something about that, uh, that good news, bad news. Sometimes it's something trivial, and then other times it's something quite serious. I dare say probably most of us this week, at least some point throughout the week, uh, turn to some type of news outlet, whether that was on TV or on social media or on uh, pay, printed paper. And, uh, and, and as you did that, I am sure that you felt like I felt, and you were just instantly bombarded uh, with all of this bad news. How many of you, uh, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, as human beings, doesn't it seem like that, that we always kind of have a tendency to focus on the negative? In fact, it was so interesting to me as I was studying this week, and I took a little rabbit trail in my study to consider uh, negativity. And uh, it was just amazing to me the amount of uh, statistics there are that, and research that would show that as human beings, we are driven to consume negative content. Uh, in fact, a lot of the things I was seeing was saying somewhere between 70% and like 90%, depending on the research, is uh, the percentage of what you and I are drawn to think negatively rather than positively about something. And isn't that interesting that negativity seems to drive our consumption of media and things in life? And I think about that because, you know, it could be for you this morning, uh, why is that? Why, why is it this good news, bad news, and then why when we're faced with information do we tend to go in a negative direction? And I think it's, I think it's pretty conclusive that, that, that we have to remember that uh, some of us, you know, we've gone through some pretty traumatic experiences in our life, and so we remember that, and we're kind of more drawn to remembering uh, those things in our life than positive ones. Sometimes it could be that we tend to respond more passionately to a negative thing than a positive thing, and so our emotions and everything gets caught up in that. But I think sometimes we, we often, too, can recall insults better than we can pray. Some of you right now can think about something negatively somebody said about you even decades ago, but you can't remember the good thing that somebody said about you last week. And yet, here we are today living our lives in a world that is filled with good news and bad news. And in fact, the passage that we've opened up to this morning, uh, we discover that in fact that is the case. Uh, we're going to come across some good news, but we're also going to be confronted with some bad news. And so I'd like to read it. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Would you stand with me uh, this morning? Stand to your feet as we read from God's Word. Now, just two weeks ago, as we were in our series together... Uh, if you turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, you discover the story that we were in. And we come across Jesus a couple weeks ago in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. And then today, as we turn our Bibles to chapter 3, we discover that Luke picks up not 
at the temple, but he, but he picks up in a moment in the life of Jesus nearly 18 years later. And he is continuing in uh, describing to us the life of Christ and giving us this story of salvation. And so this morning, we're going to read Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read all the way down together through verse 20. You follow along uh, together as I read. The scriptures say that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachinosis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked places become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came by to be baptized by him, you brought of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to him, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he may be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but I am not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, excuse me, but I am, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the fleshing, threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Father, we thank you this morning that as we have opened up your word, that we come to a story anchored in time that... Uh, really is a quite eccentric character. And as we think about John and his life, Lord, I think we'll all uh, see something in relation to our lives today. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and God quicken us to hear your word and to be doers of your word. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. 
Well, this morning we're going to pick up in the story of a rather uh, unique character. Uh, the story of John the Baptist is always one of those stories growing up that I was just kind of bewildered about. You know, he, he stands as this character in, 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 in the midst of his day, and he is very, very uh, eccentric. He is very unique in how he stands out. And today, we're just going to look at his life. We're going to look at this passage that in Luke's gospel, he, he, he brings us in as he's telling this story of salvation, and he directs our eyes in chapter 3 to uh, John the Baptist. And there's something this morning, I think a few things, that we will discover from the life of John the Baptist. I think three things uh, we're confronted with this morning if you're taking notes. The first thing that we're going to discover this morning is that John is a peculiar person. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this morning, he's a peculiar person. I mean, he's peculiar. I mean, out of all the characters in Scripture, I'd say John probably stands out to many of us for how peculiar he is. There's a number of things about him. What, what is so peculiar about this guy by the name of John the Baptist? Well, I guess the first thing we would consider is the peculiar nature of his birth. Remember, we've already looked at that. His birth was foretold by an angel, and John here is born, and he's born to elderly parents. Now, I'll just tell you, that's not the norm, right? It's not the norm, but that's unique. And here John is born to these aging elderly parents, and the scriptures tell us that even from the womb, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's quite particular and quite peculiar as we think about this guy. He's a peculiar man, and notice the Bible would tell us he's living in a very peculiar place. He's not living in the city or in town. In fact, he's not even living in a house. Where is he living? He's in the wilderness. We discover in verse 3, he's living in the wilderness, a rocky, barren wasteland filled with all of these uh, deep ravines and, and stony slopes. If you've ever seen a picture of the Judean wilderness, it is just that. It is just this barren wasteland of mountainous slopes. I've recently been re-watching the, the movies, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And if any of you have seen the land leading up to Mordor, you know, all that rocky slopes, that's the Judean wilderness, all right? It's just this barren wasteland, and John is there living in the wilderness. The wilderness ran for miles and miles, and it was only ever interrupted by an occasional camel or a shepherd who was taking their sheep through the wilderness. And here we find John. He's a very peculiar person. He had a peculiar birth. He had a, he's living in a very peculiar place. But then, but then thirdly, we discover something about his lifestyle. He has a very peculiar lifestyle. The Bible says that he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. And so just a number of weeks ago, when you and I were reading in Luke's gospel about him being in the temple and being presented, and remember all the people were asking the question, ooh, I wonder what kind of child this one will be, right? There was all this talk about who John would be. And so, you know, you fast forward all of those years later, and if Elizabeth was still living and someone was to say, hey, how's John doing? Have you seen him recently? Well, what would she say? Well, no, I haven't seen him. Actually, he's, he's, he has some weird fascination with the wilderness, right? He's always off on one of those camping expeditions. And, uh, but just if you happen to be lucky, you might find him. And I think if you find him, you'll instantly recognize him, right? He has on that leather belt and his camel 
haired jacket. <laughs> I mean, he was just standing out. You say, why is he wearing a leather belt and a camel hair jacket? Well, I think John the Baptist was really twinning with one of his favorite hero prophets, and that is the prophet Elijah. In fact, you read back in the Old Testament about Elijah, you discover that Elijah also wore a garment of hair. He had a leather belt. And if you remember that John the Baptist is to be the one, the forerunner of the Messiah, he will come in the power and spirit of Elijah. Here, John is just deepening into that identity of who he is. He's a rather peculiar person living in a peculiar place, and his lifestyle is really peculiar. I mean, you just look at what is said. Probably the most striking thing about who he is is his diet. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. I don't know if that's part of the diet that you've been on since the beginning of this new year, but I dare say it is not, right? Locusts and wild honey. Bugs. (laughs) That's what he eats. I mean, doesn't this seem kind of strange? He's a rather peculiar person. He's living out in the wilderness. He's eating bugs and wild honey. And and notice, yet we're told in Mark's gospel that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. Now, I think that's quite remarkable because here's this guy living in the backside of a wilderness. He's a rather eccentric person. And yet all of the city of Judea is drawn to hear him. They're they're, they're going to hear this message of what he is proclaiming there by the Jordan River. And so what do we discover about John? He's a peculiar person, but secondly, he's living in desperate days. But the Bible tells us that uh, Luke, a good historian, he anchors the story in the historical reliability of the first century. Notice what he does in verse uh, one of chapter three. Notice he gives us this picture of the social climate in John's preaching ministry. He describes for us five Roman officials. He describes really five Roman political leaders. He talks about Tiberius, the emperor, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. He talks about these tetrarchs, these, these ones who had uh, regional authority for Rome, Herod and Philip and Lysantis. And then he talks about these two Jewish leaders. He talks about Ananias, the high priest, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And rather, you know, as I read that, these seven people, um, if we were to bring it into our vernacular today, it would be, you know, talking about who the president is and who is our state representative and, and who's here in the county. And you just, you just, you just get this picture of, 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 a, of a political climate. And, and, and the reason why I think these are desperate days is, for one, um, this, is, this is a place with a lot of moving parts. Remember, Israel was being occupied by the Romans, and so there was all of this political um, uh, maneuvering and jousting and, 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 and all of the, this tension. I mean, really, if you, if you study uh, just history, specifically in the first century, what you discover about this climate is that it is chaotic, it is filled with corruption, there is all sorts of cruelty, and, and that's really the background of which John is entering into his public ministry, and these are desperate days because there had been no prophet in Israel for over 400 years. For over 400 years, people had waited, and a generation comes and a generation goes, and a generation comes and a generation goes, and what are they doing? They're asking the question, where is he? Where is the Messiah? They're looking at people. Could that be him? No, it's not him. Could it be him? No, it's not him. 
And what do we discover about this desperate day? That these were desperate times. People had, in many ways, lost hope. Is the Messiah even going to come? And so here is John, and he's beginning his ministry in this day of this politically charged climate. It was a day in which it was spiritually silent. And yet against that backdrop, what do we discover? He's a peculiar person living in desperate days. And notice, thirdly, he's given a divine decree. He's given something. Notice in your Bibles. Look down at verse, look down at chapter 3, at verse 2. So in the midst of John living in that day, what do we discover? Notice verse 2. That the word of whom came? God's word came. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's the word of God. So in the midst of this silent day, the word of God comes. And who does it come to? John. And what does the word say? So the word of God comes to John. And what is it saying? Hey, John, the time's now. John's the time's now. This has been prophesied in the Old Testament that a forerunner of the Messiah would come, that a forerunner would, would, would make straight, would, would, would herald the way of the Lord. And now, hey, John, the Spirit of God says, John, I'm sending you on this mission. The time's now. Go. Go declare the word of the Lord. And notice John here, absolutely certain about his calling. Verse 3, he went out into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now look at me. We just don't understand how radical this was. I mean, you see what's happening here? John receives the word that he is to go proclaim. And what is he to proclaim? A baptism for the repentance of sins. This is unfathomable. We don't understand this because in our day, we think about baptism in the New Testament perspective. But in John's day, the only people who ever were baptized was called a proselyte baptism. And it wasn't for Jews. It was for Gentiles. And so Gentile people who had a desire to come into Judaism they would be the ones required to take a bath <laughs> because the Jews looked at Gentile people as being dirty, as being uh, unclean. They, they are not really worthy of receiving this. And so in order to come into their Jewish faith, anybody who wasn't a Jew had to undergo this proselyte baptism. It was this way of the ceremonial cleansing, of basically um, uh, uh, saying that they uh, were unclean and that in order to enter into this faith, they are coming in this way of baptism. But notice here, John's proclaiming something radical because this is a baptism of repentance for who? Not Gentiles, for Jews. And now listen, this is not faith baptism. I think some of us, you know, we're looking at this passage and we're drawing out things from the New Testament. This isn't the faith baptism that Jesus is commanding to his disciples. This is something different. They're connected, but they're not the same. And so notice what John does. He, he is basically going out and he is speaking to Jewish people and he is telling them to repent and to be baptized. This is not something for Gentiles to come into the faith. This is for Jewish people to recognize that they need to be cleansed. You see what John's saying? John's speaking to people who think that they're religiously okay. He thinks that they, 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 they think that they have what they need. And John is saying, hey, the Messiah is about to come. The one that you've been looking for is here, but you're not ready to receive it. 
And in order to receive it, John says, you must enter into this baptism of repentance. And so what do we discover? Luke tells us. That as John is proclaiming this salvation and this repent, this, as John is proclaiming this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, John's speaking to Jewish people who thought that they were okay, but they weren't. And John was saying, hey, you're no more fit for the Messiah. You're no more fit for Christ's kingdom than any other Gentile person. That before you can receive the Messiah in your life, you must come into this baptism. So notice verse 4. So he proclaims the word of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John goes to to make preparation. Christ had not yet come on the scene. And here John is, do you get it? Do you get the picture? He's going around all the regions and he's calling people to receive this baptism of repentance, that they would admit that they are not where they need to be, that they are not who they need to be. And that in order to receive the the salvation of what the Messiah will bring, that that they need to recognize and admit that in their own life. And so he goes out just like an Old Testament prophet. And notice he says in verse 6, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's a peculiar person living in desperate days. And notice he's given this divine decree. And here's the question, how did he give it? Now stay with me. Because you're asking, the, I know you're asking the question, what is this, pastor, where are you going? I can see it in some of your eyes. Stay with me. How is he declaring the message? He's, he's giving it with boldness. John was bold. Do you see it in verse 7? Notice in your Bibles, verse 7, how does, he, how does he begin? People are coming to hear his message, and he says, you broad of vipers. <laughs> you know what he's saying? He says, you den of hissing snakes. That's what he's saying. You evil snakes. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, John, he, 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 he would not be known for his political correctness if he was living in the 21st century, all right? I mean, John's just, John's just calling it out. He's calling it out to people who think that they're religiously okay. And he says, hey, you think you're fine because you claim Abraham is your father. And John says, hey, if Abraham needs stones, God could raise up sons from stones. So don't think you're something. You need repentance. You need this repentance. You need to be washed in the river. You need, to, you need to come for cleansing. And notice John's so bold. He's so bold in the way he shares the message. He's, he's speaking to people who think that they're religiously all right. And he says, hey, guess what? The ax is laid at the root of the trees. The wrath of God is coming. And you see how he says it in verse 8? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Some of you think that you're spiritually, religiously all right. And John would say, he'd look at their life and he says, but you don't have any fruit to verify or to back up what you say. You know, some people are like that in the church today. There's a lot of people in the church today who want to talk like they're religiously all right, that somehow they've received Christ for salvation. But you look at their life and there's no fruit whatsoever that they really know Christ. There's no fruit in their life of whether or not they've been changed. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice, because why? Because the judgment of God is coming. Verse 9, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit, notice, my friends, what happens, is cut down and is thrown into the what? Fire. Oh, John was preaching the judgment of God. John was faithfully proclaiming the wrath of God that one day, my friend, the judge of living and dead will come. 
and we will all stand before him. And John is speaking to these people who think they're religiously all right and they're not. He's bold. He's so bold that he was calling out the political leaders in their day. He called out Herod for having his brother's wife. You know, some people would say to John, John, you're going to lose your head for that. Well, he did. But it didn't keep him from saying what was right. He's a bold, peculiar guy. And he's a guy with integrity. Notice verse 10. He's having all these people come to him, asking what they are to do. Hey, what should we do, John? I mean, we're coming. We, we want to be baptized. John says, hey, do you have two tunics? How many of you here have two coats? Can I see your hand? Well, John say, give one to someone who doesn't have it. How many of you would say, they're saying, well, well John, I want to I show that I'm really repentant. Well, do you have food? Well, give to the one who has none. And, and listen, here's a guy with much boldness because he has tax collectors coming to him and he's talking to tax collectors that have every right in his day to ask John, to basically extort from John whatever he's to give. And these tax collectors come and they said, well, what should we do? Verse 12, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Verse 14, soldiers come. What should we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. I mean, John, he's telling it as it is. He's making no distinction who somebody is. This tax collector, this soldier, that tetrarch, didn't matter. Truth is truth. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And John is declaring truth. He's a man of boldness. He's a man of integrity. Notice we see it in these verses. But we also find something about John in the way that he's proclaiming it, and that is he's, he's proclaiming this divine decree with such humility. Verse 15, notice in your Bibles, people were in expectation. They were questioning their hearts whether or not John is the Christ. And John said, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. You know, it would be really easy for John to amass quite a following in the wilderness. He's proclaiming this baptism of repentance. Things are going so well. All the people from all the regions and countries are coming. Hey, let's publish some books, you know. That's what he'd say. Let's, let's take it off. That's not what he does. John recognizes who he is. He recognizes his mission. He says, uh, no, that's not, my, that's not my job. He says, there's one who's coming who is mightier than I. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I'm preparing the way for him. Ministry isn't about me. It's about him. You read in John chapter 3 that John was a man of so such humility. In John chapter 3, the Bible, remember all of the disciples? John, by this time, is amassing disciples. And John's disciples are now going after the Messiah and recognizing who he is. And John's not trying to hold on to them. John says, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. Less about me. It's all about him. And he's proclaiming this baptism of repentance with boldness. He's proclaiming it with integrity. He's proclaiming it, notice here, with, with humility. And he's proclaiming it with such simplicity. People weren't wondering what he was saying. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John, what, what's your message? <laughs> it's simple. It's all about Jesus. Wait, wait, John, what do you mean? What, do, what, are, what are you talking about? It's about Jesus. I'm telling you, there's someone who's more worthy than I. There's someone who's coming, who has his whining fork in his hand. John says, do you see it there in chapter 3? Notice in your Bibles, look down, look down at uh, verse 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming in the strap of his sandals. I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will what? Burn with unquenchable fire. John's given the gospel and he's laying it out about as simply as you can. My granddad all the time as he challenges me as I preach, he says, Aaron, keep the cookies on the bottom shelf. Just where anybody can hear it and anybody can receive it. The Bible says even a wayfaring man, somebody who's uneducated, should be able to understand and grasp the things of God. Give the gospel with such simplicity, and John does. He says, it's not me. Don't come for me. There's one who is mightier than I. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? Reminds me of something I heard about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was preaching and really teaching to a group of young preachers and listen to what he said on the subject of simplicity. He says, whatever you may know, you cannot be truly efficient ministers if you're not apt to teach. You're probably all acquainted with ministers who have mistaken their calling and evidently have no gifts for it. Make sure that none think the same of you. There are many brethren in ministry whose speech is intolerable. Either way, they rouse you to wrath or they send you to sleep. No anesthetic can ever equal some discourse in self-giving properties. No human being, unless gifted with infinite patience, could long endure to listen to them. Their nature does well to give the victim deliverance through sleep. He said, I once heard the other day of a certain preacher who had no more gifts for ministry than an oyster. In my own judgment, I think it was a slander on the oyster. For that worthy bivalve shows great discretion in his openings, and he knows when to close. If some men were sentenced to hear their own sermons, it would be a righteous judgment upon them, but they would soon cry out with Cain, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So let us not fall under the same condemnation. You know what Spurgeon's saying? He says, don't be a windbag of not preaching the gospel. Just tell it simply. John did that. So you're here this morning and you're saying, okay, pastor, we've gone a while in the sermon and I'm just beginning to really question where in the world are we going? I, no joke, I see it on your faces. I'm beginning to wonder if I'm the person that Spurgeon's speaking of here. Just kidding. You're asking this morning though, what is all this about? Look right up here. In my study this week, I feel like the Lord just helped me see the conclusion of this so simply. And that is this. John's a really good picture of you and I. Because the Bible would also say that you and I are peculiar people. The Bible says in 1 Peter, God and Peter in speaking to the church, he says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into such marvelous light. You know what Peter's saying? Hey, you've been given a new identity. You have a new identity. You, as the church of Jesus Christ, are peculiar people. Now, just turn around the room this morning and look at how peculiar they are. No, that's not the peculiarness he's talking about. He's not talking about weirdness. You know, some of us have that idea. Christians are just weird people. Sometimes I grew up and there was, you know, they make their weirdness about being a Christian. It's like, no, you're just weird, you know. But peculiarness is, is, is different. It's, was John different in his day, yes or no? Anybody else out there wearing leather belts and camel skins? I mean, John's trendsetting, right? No one else. But why? Because it served to speak to the message of what he was proclaiming. You know, in the Old Testament, God called his people to be peculiar people. They can have intermixed like fabrics. You know, you can't blend polyester and cotton. You're like, why? <laughs> because God says, I want you to be different. I want you to be so different as a people that people look at you and they're not zoned in on your differences. They see that you're a different people and you stand out to them, but then it speaks to the excellencies of the glory of God. You and I are also peculiar people and I would say that you and I are living in some pretty desperate days. Would you agree with that? Yes or no? How many of you agree this is some desperate days? Yeah, you know, the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, we're reminded that Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. In Ephesians 6, we're told to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Friend, the Bible would tell you and I that we're living in some very evil days. Calls it an evil age. Don't be surprised. That's the worst part about Christians is that they're caught off guard in the day they're living in. Well, the Bible says don't be surprised. You and I are living in very desperate days. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You and I are peculiar people living in desperate days. And notice, we've been given a divine decree. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have suggested to you. Is that how it goes? Is it a divine suggestion? Do teach them to observe whatsoever I have, what? Commanded you. Find it interesting, Jesus began his earthly ministry there being baptized. And he concludes his earthly ministry by looking to his followers and commanding you and I to go and baptize others. Look right up here this morning. You and I are peculiar people living in desperate days and we've been given a divine decree. It matters in how you share it. Will you share it boldly? Will you share it with integrity? Will you share it with humility? Will you share it with simplicity? Will you proclaim the gospel in a way that, 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 that people recognize that, that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Guys, the mission of the church is still reaching people for Christ. It's still teaching people the Bible. It's 
baptizing people. Look right up here. Look right up here. The church is not a social club. Not a social club. If you're here at Catawba Valley Baptist for the programming of what we do, you're only in on a very surface level thing. If you're here for activities, if you're here for events, if you're here for programs, you're just missing it. And that's really not what all this church I pray is about. We've been given a message. We've been given a message, a divine decree by the Lord. Our, our, here's the question. The question in our generation is whether or not we're going to have people that are going to stand for righteousness. Are there going to be people who are going to stand in an evil day? Jesus said that when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? I've just been thinking about this week, how faithless the church of Jesus Christ looks like in America. Lord, I pray that's not my life. I pray that's not our church your church. Lord, don't let us get wrapped up in all these other things that we miss the main thing. John got the main thing. He realized that God had sent him to be a very peculiar place in a very desperate day because he had a message. John knew his assignment. I wonder today, does the church of Jesus Christ know theirs? I really wonder, does the church know their assignment? God help us. May judgment begin in the house of God. May God help us to, to see that we're not doing the right thing. May God help us if we have hypocrisy in our life that would make us seem like we're doing it when we're not. And would the Lord just give us that spirit, His spirit, we can't manufacture it. It doesn't come from anyone else other than God who would give it. That's my prayer. It's my prayer for you today. You're a peculiar person living in some desperate days and God's given you a message. Will you be faithful to it? Will you understand the assignment? And will you be faithful to the master? That's the question. Father, help us. Lord, I, I feel so inadequate this morning to share. But Father, it is some days we, we get so caught up in life that, that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that things are better or things are whatever. And we could just be missing the entire message. We could be missing the entire assignment. And God, thank you that John was sensitive to your spirit. Thank you that John was faithful. Thank you that John prepared the way. And Lord, I pray for this morning, brothers and sisters in this room, that Lord, they've been tasked with this commission. I pray that Lord, it would not just be words, but Lord, it would be our life. It would be, it would be demonstrated by our life that these things are true. I ask that Lord, your spirit would speak in our hearts God, lead us to, um, to take a next step in our life this morning, whatever that may look like. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Would you, be stand, would you stand with me this morning? Lori's going to begin to play. And um, there's some cards up front here. Some in our church have asked for prayer this morning. Would you come and...
pray for one who's requested prayer. Uh, Maybe this morning you want to come and kneel down here at the altar and just admit the fact that these are some very desperate days. Lord, help us to stand firm. Help us to take up by faith the armor of God and stand well in an evil day. Help us not shy away from the hard things, but Lord, help us to be faithful in them. Would you just come this morning, if God's laid it on your heart to pray, to get alone with him, would you just come? And ask, God for the, ask God the Spirit for a, for a real work in your heart. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. My friend, has He taken away your sin today? Do you know Christ as your Savior? It can happen right there in your seat this morning. You turn from yourself and you put your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you. His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension to the Father. You believe what Christ has done for you and receive in faith, what God would give you. I pray you know the Lord. Father, this morning we just lay all before you. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that, Lord, by this word this morning, our hearts have been quickened and challenged to leave these doors this morning with a new thought uh, for the world that we're living in. In the message we've been given, we pray we would be faithful, Lord, to take every opportunity that you give us this week to share Christ and to share his love. We ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.